Well, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of uh, this summer series that we've entitled, What is a Christian? And I just want to thank you uh, for your many comments and your emails, your texts, uh, your encouragement, your questions, your concerns. All of those things have been a blessing to me. And I really thank each and every one of you. Uh, You have treated Sherry and I beautifully this uh, summer. And uh, next week when I preach on uh, how to love your pastor, um, we'll say goodbye. But Pastor David will be coming the week or two weeks after that to say hello. So uh, it'll be good. And soon you'll forget that I ever existed. But I (laughs) pray that the truths of this summer about what it means to be a disciple will be with you forever. So um, here's what I want to begin with this morning. Uh, I was thinking this last week about uh, how to conclude this series. And here's one thing that I want to share with you from my heart that I hope was clear, but maybe it wasn't. So it's this. It's about love. Uh, Everything we've talked about this summer has been about being a disciple. And the number one responsibility of a disciple is always the same. These are Jesus' words, John, Peter, James, Paul, they all said the same thing, to love God and love people. There's no uh, lack of clarity around this. But when we talk about love, I want to make sure you understand what the Bible means by this and what I mean by this. So love is not this kumbaya, sit in a circle, hold hands. This isn't a 1960s love each other instead of, you know, loving war. And it's none of that kind of stuff. What love is, the way Jesus shared his love, the way Jesus described love, and the word that we know from the New Testament, there's a lot of words for love, but the word that we know well is what? Agape. And that love is this self-giving love. It's this um, intentional I care deeply about you and I want your best kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus shared with us that we're to share with others is this drawing love, this redemptive love, this come to me kind of love. So here's what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to represent Jesus' love to each other, to Christ followers and to non-Christ followers out in the world. We're supposed to represent that. And we do that by loving them so well that they see Jesus in us. In other words, we are dot connectors between God's love and our love. That's what our love is about. We are dot connectors so that they will see the redeeming love of Jesus. Because the purpose of every relationship that we have on this earth is the same as Jesus. The purpose of Jesus' relationship with every person on this earth was I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And that's our responsibility. We want to love people in such a way that they are drawn to Jesus and they experience his life and his love. So when we talk about love, we're not talking about I love tacos or I love fishing, and I do, or I love my wife even, or I love this church. But we're talking about this redemptive drawing into kind of love that Jesus had so that people would recognize him and be exper- and experience his life and his love. So that's what uh, love has been about this summer. So um, I want to do a, a brief recap. I should bring my Bible up here. That'd be important. Yeah, yeah, I knew it's down here somewhere. Uh, we're going to do this uh, a brief recap of what we've looked at this summer. And then I want to conclude with an idea, a concept from Jesus that I think is revolutionary. 
Um, I, I know that sometimes when you hear me preach, you say, well, man, where did that come from? I'm not quite sure I get that. Well, that's okay. Uh, part of it is I'm twisted. That's who I am. And part of it is I just really love the nuances of God's word and how it speaks to uh, different lives. So today, a brief synopsis. And um, then I want to leave you with a truth that will change the way you see yourself, hopefully, other disciples, and those who, are, who have not yet said yes to Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christ follower or a Christian, if you don't consider yourself uh, a Bible person or a church person, um, this is a great Sunday to be here because I hope to bring some clarity to some things about the church and about Christ followers that maybe you have forgotten or you've never seen. And by the way, uh, my experience has been uh, in churches that uh, at least half of the people in church at some time in their life has been hurt by the church, by a teaching or a doctrine, or more than that, a person or a pastor or a leader or a youth leader. And my experience has been that a lot of people that experience that leave the church, and many of them, what, never come back. But some of them, and maybe some of you are this way, say, you know what? That was a bad experience. It, I don't, it didn't feel like God. It didn't feel like Jesus to me. So I'm going to give it another try. Congratulations for coming back because maybe this will be different. It's like, you know, I went and I had a hamburger the other day and it was a bad hamburger. Therefore, I'm never going to eat hamburgers for the rest of my life. Well, that's just not true. I'm just going to go to another hamburger store, right? Get a better. Well, I hope that this is a better hamburger store for you if you've experienced uh, pain in your life in the church. So uh, when we started this series, we recognized that Christianity has this huge branding problem. This is what other believers believe of us. Now, when I read this, I I made this up, by the way. This isn't a quote from somebody smart. Um, When I read this, you're going to say, well, I don't believe that. And I'm sure you don't. But believe me, this paragraph that I wrote comes from conversations with hundreds of people who have said no to Jesus over and over again. And the reason they've said no is because of what the church has represented and because of what Christians have represented. So here's the paragraph. Christians are homophobic, judgmental moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and they secretly secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Now you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, I know you don't believe that, neither do I. But there's a lot of people in the world that do. A lot of people look at the church and say, why would I possibly go to that group? Because they're all of those things. And they're very closed and they're very dogmatic and they're very exclusive. Well, my news to them is I'm not exclusive, but Jesus is. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but my me. Yeah, by definition, uh, a Christ follower is exclusive. Now, that doesn't mean we exclude them from our love. But that means that Jesus is the only way. We believe that, we teach it, we preach it, and that's why we love people. So that they are drawn to us and we can be a dot connector between them and the Father who loves them and who set his son to die for them. So that was week one of the series. Uh, The second week we looked at um, a very famous author, authoress. Her name was Anne Rice. And Anne Rice wrote a bunch of very graphic, uh, very distinctly non-Christian books about vampires back uh, before 1998 and uh, became very famous. <clears throat> then in 1998, she had an experience with Jesus 
And she went back to her church of her youth, her, the Roman Catholic Church. And for the next eight, ten years, she started writing Christian books. And some of them, I, one of them, I should only say, say, I've only read one, is very, very good. And so she started writing this way. But then about eight or ten years after that experience, she'd been in the church, back in the church now for eight or nine years, uh, here's what she wrote. She said, I quit. I'm done with the church. I'm out. And then she went on and said this. The reason I'm out is because of this group of, quote, quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. That's what she said of the church. Now, Anne Rice said, now, I'm still a follower of Jesus. I'm still going to write Christian books. I still love Jesus, and I love some of his people, but I don't love the majority of them. I have seen them fight and argue and all of that, and I am out. So that's the reputation from not only outside the church, from inside the church. So we have this tremendous branding problem that we need to address. And that's what we've been doing over this summer. So uh, in fact, uh, one uh, family uh, in our church that started coming in the summer, they were new, new to grace. Uh, they told me after a few weeks, they said, we've always believed that the church was not for us. But we now believe that the church is for us, and we want to become disciples. I mean, isn't that beautiful? That's a family that now attends regularly in our church. So from the very beginning, uh, a part of our branding problem is terminology. Terminology. A Christian, the word is used three times in the New Testament and never really defined. Or de- uh, uh, it was what mostly what people like Nero called the church, those Christians. Okay. So, uh, but, but, so that was the problem. And a Christian because it's not defined in the Bible, can mean anything you want it to mean. A Christian can mean someone who believes in God. A Christian can mean somebody who accepts all religions. A Christian can mean, uh, I'm a a Mormon. A Christian can mean, uh, I'm a Republican, or a Democrat, or I drink iced tea. You know, in other words, a a Christian can mean anything you want it to mean. Because you say, well, I'm a Christian. When somebody says to me, I'm a Christian, I think to myself, I have no idea what they mean. So that's the branding, that's the problem. Now, on, on, on the flip side, when you look at the Gospels, it's very clear what Jesus called this new movement. And by the way, Christianity was always a movement. It was never a building. It's always and has always been a movement. Uh, this movement was called people of the way. And then Jesus started calling them by this phrase, you are a what? A disciple. A disciple. Now, here, here's the problem with a disciple. It's a very narrow definition. Very narrow definition. A disciple is someone, a follower of Jesus now. I mean, you can be a disciple of anything, but a follower of Jesus is defined in the scripture as somebody who says, okay, Jesus, I'm on board. I belong to you. You belong to me. I have uh, given my life over to you. I surrender my will, my life to you. So um, Jesus, how do you want me to deal with my marriage? He tells us in the book. Well, that's going to be hard. But my answer to that, Brian reminded of this, the answer to that is what? Yes. That wasn't a very enthusiastic yes. I'm going to give you another chance in just a second. So uh, a teenager goes to school and uh, is being bullied. And the world says, hate the bullies, crush them if you can figure out how to get away from them. But 
doggone it. Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. All the religions say kill your enemies. Christianity says love your enemies. Mm, How can I do that? And so Jesus, I don't know what you want me to do. You say love my enemy, love this person that's bullying me. I don't quite know what that means. But my answer is what? Yes. Yes. Uh, This boss at work is just driving me nuts. I don't know what to do. They're picking on me and all this. And and I just wish I could just leave and just get rid of them and but Jesus, you said that you're supposed, I'm supposed to love those and respect those who are in authority over me. The answer is what? Yes. And on social media, the way these kids are talking to each other, and I'm being trashed, and it's not true, and I don't know what to do, and I, I don't know what I should do, and, and yet uh, Pastor Dwayne says that I'm supposed to love my enemy, and he says I'm supposed to love like Jesus loved. And I don't know what that really means, but my answer to that is yes, 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 yes. That's what a disciple says. When you open the pages of the, the gospel, it's all over there. In John 13:35, by this one thing, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. By this one thing how you love or treat one another. And then the elders and teachers, they tried to trick Jesus. That was always a a theme throughout the Gospels. They tried to trick Jesus. And so they asked him a really kind of thorny question, a question that they had asked in the temple thousands of times and never came up with an answer. And that was this, what's the greatest commandment? Well, you got the Big Ten, so you figure it's probably one of those. But then the Big Ten, out of that came 600 other laws that tried to understand the Big Ten. And, and then out of the 600, there were these thousands of other, another layer of trying to explain the explanation of the explanation of the Big Ten. And so they thought, oh, we've got him now. He thinks he's a smart guy, but we got him now. So Jesus, what's the greatest, most important law? And this is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Going back to Deuteronomy 6, it's called the Sacred Shema, and that's what the little booklet they used to put on their wrists, on their forehead. The, the, sometimes you still see rabbis or uh, Orthodox Jews do that today. And then that was the Sacred Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. So that was, oh, that, okay, okay, Jesus, you're, you're right. We, you're right. We forgot about that one. <laughs> but that you're right. And then, but Jesus wasn't done. This is what he said. Then the second is this. Really? There's more than one greatest commandment? Yeah, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Pharisees said, time out. We get the thing about loving God. But you want us to love pagans? You want us to love Samaritans? You want us to love Gentiles? You want us to love women? You want us to love our children? What are you talking about? Jesus said, this is the new and greatest commandment. He said new in in another passage in John. This is the new and greatest commandment. The second is love your neighbor yourself. Now, a lot of Christians and people, Christians that have left, when we first started Hope, um, our target our target was to reach, reach non-Christians. But our target also was to reach unchurched Christians. There's a lot of them out there. A lot have been hurt by the church or they've gotten lazy. You don't go to church anymore. But, so, but here, what Jesus is saying, to love your neighbors yourself, in other words, don't try and love me without loving the church. Don't try the first one without the second one. 
Don't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't go around God's people. No, no, Jesus said that's not what you do. The second is as important. Don't try to do the first without the second. 25 years later, Paul added in Romans 13, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, is there any way this is ambiguous? Is there any way you don't understand this? I'm saying this over... Now remember, the kind of love we're talking about is not the kumbaya love, right? It's the giving love. It's the drawing love. It's the redemptive love. It's the connecting the dot love with Jesus. So it's not just kind of feeling good about everybody. It's not just every religion is okay. We're all going to the same place. It's not just let's everybody get along. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of love that gives yourself away. Because that's what Jesus did for you. The kind of love that draws people into you so that you can connect the dots to him. That's the kind of love he's talking about. All these teachings that you grew up with hang on these two commandments, Jesus would say. The laws, everything else flows from, listen, and is subservient to every teaching, every sermon, every what about this, what about sex, what about race, what about war, what about marriage. Everything is subservient to and flows from these two commandments to love God and to love other people. And he would say, don't you dare use my law to unlove someone else or to hurt someone or to them someone. All the law and the prophets hang on and are hinged to these two laws. Love God, love your neighbor. No excuses. Now last week we brought up the the big idea of what does love require of me? When you look at all the teachings on love, that's really the question that keeps popping up. Maybe not in those words, but that's always the implication. Well, what does love require of me? If, If my job is to love God, what does that require of me? What does that look like? If my job is to love you, What does that look like? If my job is to love the unchurched and the ones that are far from Christ, what does that look like? What does love require of me in those situations? See, that's what disciples ask. Now, Christians don't ask that. Christians ask, say, well, I don't really believe that. Or I don't think that's really what Jesus said. Or, you know, you can believe anything you want. But that's what Christians say. But disciples say, what does love require of me? Because whatever it is, the answer is what? What? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Whatever it is, the answer is yes. It may be hard. I may not want to. It may look terrible. It may feel like, oh, I could never do that. But the answer is always yes. That's the big idea. Then I need to ask the question, if that's the big idea, well, how does that work in my marriage? What does love require of me? How does that work at school with the bullies? How does that work at my job? How does that work in my church when I have a disagreement with someone? How does that work with people that I disagree with that have different religions, different races, different sexual orientation? My enemies, what does love require of me in those circumstances? That kind of love that draws people to me so that I can connect the dot with Jesus' love? See, it's a game changer, folks. I really believe that. Because I grew up, as many of you did, with a focus on the commands rather than the heart of the commander. Now, there's nothing wrong with the commands. The only problem with the commands is we don't keep them. (laughs) That's the only problem with the commands. That's the only problem with the Ten Commandments, is we don't keep them. Paul said it's a schoolmaster. It does two things. It points to Jesus, and it points to the fact that you can't keep them. That's what the law does. 
But here we have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. We've redeemed by his love, by his death on the cross. And now we have this whole different paradigm of how we see people and how we see ourselves. What does love require of me? So we grew up with the commands rather than the heart of the commander. I remember one experience. Um, I was in junior high school, just starting uh, seventh grade, and where we, li- we lived in a remote country area of San Diego, East County, San Diego. And so we had to take a bus to school. And so the, we were at the bus stop, and my friend and I, Leroy and, and I, we were, um, we were very faithful at church. Our par- or at least my parents were faithful. Leroy would come with me. We heard all about the teaching and the preaching. We always heard about the commands. Always heard, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do anything that might remotely look like fun. You know, that's what we heard all the time. Don't, 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 don't. And, and that's what Christians are. And so we heard all that. And so we go to the bus stop and there's a group of boys over there. They're smoking. Well, that's what junior high kids do when you're not looking. I mean, don't think they don't do it anymore. Now they, what do they, vape or something? That's stupid. Anyway, so, I mean, but they're always, they're doing something, right? That you, as a parent, you are, are mad that they're doing, but you just don't know it. And so they're over there smoking. And so Leary and I go over there. Uh, with, uh, with um, you know, command in our hearts. And uh, I'm not sure there was love on our lips, but there was command in our hearts. And we went over and said, you guys need to stop smoking because God wants you to stop smoking. Well, I'm not going to tell you what they said in response. Uh, but here's what Lyra and I did. We decided to do the right thing. We beat them up. <laughs> God's truth. With, with love and grace in our hearts, we beat the living daylights out of them and threw their cigarettes away, and we thought we had accomplished a victory. All we did was set Christianity back a hundred years. That's all we did. By saying, okay, this is what... No, no. Why not go over and become friends with those boys? Why not get in a relationship with those boys? Why not influence them? Draw them into your love in such a way that they see the love of Jesus and you become a dot connector. See, this has got to be our first response. Before you get... Any place around the command, make sure that you understand that you are loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is your primary first response. What does love require of me? If you're a Jesus follower, not just a Christian, am I willing to step into that question? What does love require of me? That's a hard question. And now for the next few minutes, I want to share with you this extraordinary teaching of Jesus. Now, it sounds so simple. Love God, love people. But I want to focus on this idea of loving people and why this teaching was so amazing because Jesus could have said any number of things. This is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. But he said this is the most important thing, how we love each other. So let me tell you why this matters so much. Now, the early church movement was completely uh, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, When you look at the Acts of the Apostles, really it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this driving force of this early church movement, and they delivered the gospel, and I've told you this a hundred times, they delivered the gospel, they only had one delivery system. And that delivery system was love. They didn't have any other delivery system. But the Holy Spirit empowered them. They were delivering this gospel message with love, and it literally changed the world. So let me, let me give you a personal example of what this looks like. So in your life, think about yourself now, there are two categories of people that have made you who you are, okay? Um, your father, a mother, a child, a student, an employee, an employer, a friend. Uh, there are two categories of people who have made you who you are. 
And those two categories of people did not influence you primarily by their beliefs, but primarily by the way they treated you. Now, the beliefs came into play, of course, and that was very important. My parents loved the Lord, and that was a tremendous influence in my life. But the two categories of people are those people who have hurt you profoundly and have loved you deeply. That's how your life was formed and shaped. That's what brings you to today. You have been hurt profoundly or loved deeply, and many of us both, right? Those are the two things that have kind of driven you. Uh, so we do a ministry at, oh, we did a ministry at Hope called Mending the Soul. I think you've done, you've done Mending the Soul here before. It's a great ministry, and it's addressing this. How many people, I don't know why it is, but especially women, have been hurt deeply in their soul. Um, a parent or a, a friend or a relative that sexually abused them or abuse them in some other way. And these deep wounds of the soul, that affects them more than almost anything else in the world. And similarly, those of you who have been affected deeply, profoundly by someone who has loved you like Jesus loves you, that has changed your life dramatically. Like I said before, many of us have had both of those experiences in our life. So when Jesus said, it really matters how you love each other, that's what he was talking about. When people hurt you, it changes your life. When people love you profoundly, it changes your life. Why has God called us to be that kind of a loving person? Because it really, really matters in our world. We, have a, uh, we had a neighbor in San Diego, the first church that I served, Mount McGill Covenant Church. Um, we bought this little house. We, we bought a house. This was in 1979. We bought a house for $80,000 in southern in San Diego. Yeah. That house now is 10 times that amount. Anyway, so we bought this little house. And our neighbor was a single mom, a Carolyn, and she had a five-year-old, uh, Christopher. And Christopher and our youngest, Tyler, were best buddies. Okay, they were, they were both five. They were in kindergarten together. Best buddies. Well, Tyler was constantly evangelizing. That's the way he was. He was invited. Hey, hey, Christopher, why don't you come to church with me? Okay, mommy, can I go to church with Tyler? Nope, 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 can't go to church. So, and Sherry and I got to know Carolyn. Sherry would invite her to church. I'd invite her to church. No, thanks, no, thanks. But we were neighbors. We loved on them. They were friends. We had a great relationship. We were drawing them into this place of comfort and safety and love so that one day we might have the opportunity to connect the dot to Jesus' love, right? That's why we love them. And, um, and then after about a year, um, uh, Carolyn asked to see me in a counseling relationship. And so we met in my office at the church, and she told me her story. Still breaks my heart when I hear it. Her father was a very well-known. Uh, he was uh, head of a missionary movement, he was very well known. Uh, you'd recognize his name if I said it from years ago. Uh, very well known, very powerful, influential man. And her father, from the time she was three until she left for college at age 17, sexually abused her and her sister. His theology didn't do her any good. His doctrine did not change her life. But how he treated her did. And here's this broken woman. And 
Sherry begins to really love on her. Once she hears the story, Carolyn shares the story with Sherry. And over a period of time, you know what's coming. We bring Jesus into this conversation. Yeah, but I heard all that. Let's reset. Okay, reset, reset. Let me tell you about Jesus that I know. And she was healed and she was redeemed and it was beautiful and it was all by the power of the Holy Spirit. But my point is this. Sometimes our theology is empty. Not sometimes, always, when it's not backed up by a life that loves, but a life that hurts. All of you have been profoundly affected by someone who has hurt you or loved you or both. And here's what Jesus is saying to all of us. We've just got to love profoundly. We've just got to do it. Extraordinarily profound. We've just got to do it. We've got to get this. This is our best play. This is our greatest leverage. This is our greatest opportunity as a church and as Christ followers and as to love profoundly. You know, I'm a Bible person. I always have been. And I care deeply about Scripture and its importance in my life and in the lives of the people that I teach. But here's something I've really come to believe. If we would simply do what Jesus said instead of arguing about what he said, the world would change. Let me say that again. For all of us who know church history and are part of it, if we would simply do what Jesus said instead of arguing about what he said, the world would change. The reputation of Christ followers would change. The church would have a new brand, a new worldview. And I would just wonder if Grace Community Church, if you're up for it. Jesus said, I want you to love profoundly to love God with all your heart and to love other people in such a way that you draw them into yourself and they find the redeeming love of Jesus in their lives. See, Jesus' teaching on this, it was brilliant. It was brilliant how he talked about the importance of loving each other. Now, Jesus had an advantage. His advantage that uh, he knew each person's story. (laughs) He knew when he, when he scolded the Pharisees, when he really got after them, he knew their story. He knew their hearts, right? The woman at the well, he knew her heart. The woman who came to him when he was at the Pharisee's house having dinner and she came, the prostitute with the, uh, the expensive oil, and she put it on his feet and he knew her heart. The Samaritan woman, the Bible says that she looked at him and he said, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. First time he said that to anyone. And he's saying this to a Samaritan woman. Jesus knew her heart. You see, he has that advantage. We don't have that advantage. We don't know people's hearts. But let's not judge them until we do. Until we know their story. We don't judge that teenager because his pants are hanging below his butt, you know. We don't judge that person because they're wearing a turban. We don't judge that person because they're doing something or acting in a way that we don't like. We don't do that. We get to know them. We draw into their lives so that they draw into our lives and we can share with them the amazing grace of Jesus. That's what love requires of me. That's what love requires of me. We need to put down our weapons and our theological peculiarities and differences for one day, one month, one year and see how the world will change when we love a person the way that Jesus loved us, to love them profoundly. And God forbid that we ever hurt them deeply. 
So I want to just close with uh, making, by making three statements that will hopefully clarify this truth. This is what I want you to go home with. Three statements to clarify this truth of how we t- are to love. Uh, how, what does love require of me? The first thing is this. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Um, yourself. Don't do anything that will hurt yourself. We'll talk about these in a moment. Number two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. It's what Jesus talked about. And number three, don't be mastered by anything. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Why? Because you can't do anything that hurts you that doesn't hurt Jesus. I mean, as a parent, my kids are grown now, and my grandkids are, uh, three, three of our grandkids are in college. And so, I mean, we're seeing this life kind of tick away. But when something, when a choice that my child makes or my grandchild, a moral or ethical or sexual or professional or relational decision they make that hurts them, guess what? Hurts me. It hurts Sherry. When your kids, your grandkids make a decision, that it hurts. So, so don't say, no, it's just about me. It's not just about you. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones that you love the most. And remember from a couple of weeks ago, every sin has a what? A gotcha. Every sin has a gotcha. Oh, I got away with that. Nope. Every sin has a gotcha. Don't do anything that will hurt yourself. Secondly, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. This is where we have to make a commitment. This is how, when somebody's on social media attacking us, when somebody attacks us in person, when a road rager cuts us off, when all of these have, I will not do or say anything that will hurt someone else. I know that sounds like a peace, Nick. I was raised in the 60s, so cut me some slack. I know it sounds like that, but I'm telling you what Jesus is saying. And when you look eyeball to eyeball with people that God loves, it changes the way you treat them. You've got to know their story before you judge them. And you can only know their story if you get to know them. And the third thing is not to be mastered by anything, anything. Why? Because when you are mastered by something, it keeps you from loving someone. No one should have to compete with your alcoholism. No one should have to compete with your gambling. No one should have to compete with your prescription drugs or your anger or your self-righteousness. Refuse to be mastered by anything because God is your master. And the song goes, he is jealous for you. So do not hurt yourself or hurt someone else or be mastered by anything. That's what it means to love someone well. Now, uh, I've shared this story with some of you, but I just want to share this in closing about my own personal life. So... In 1997, um, we were in Minnesota, Roseville, Minnesota, at the uh, Covenant Church there. I finally confessed to my wife and our counselor uh, that I was an addictive gambler. This has been going on for two and a half years. Now, it was a kind of a function of the death of our son years before that that I'd never dealt with, but that's, that's, that's an excuse, and that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I made a decision to be involved in a, an addictive behavior. And I did that. And when I confessed that, uh, of course, I lost my church. I was under the uh, counsel and care of the denomination, the board of ministry. I went into counseling, all of those things. And uh, see, I, 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 I had to tell my, my wife, I hurt her so deeply. 
I had to tell my children. I had to tell my mother. I had to tell my church. All these people that I hurt so deeply, so profoundly. And in doing that, um, my life was altered forever. Three years later, after going through a series of counseling and different things, at the Board of Ministry, the Midwinter Conference in 2000, the Board of Ministry reordained me. Greatest moment of my life. They reordained me. And here's how I got back. My wife never stopped loving me. My kids never stopped loving me. The church, and they should have been the ones that were the most mad. Most of them never stopped loving me. But most importantly was this. I was driving uh, for Quicksilver. I was driving for, I couldn't be in ministry, so I was just doing some uh, uh, driving. And uh, I heard this song on the radio. Um, It's an old song, Oceans of Mercy and Rivers of Grace. And when I heard that song, I had to pull the car over to the side, and I just wept. I just wept, and all that poison and all that sin just poured out of me. It was the grace of God that brought me back. That's why the songs that we've sung today mean so much. It was the grace of God that brought me back. Do you see what I'm saying? It was love that drew me back. It was the love of my family. It was the love of the church. But mostly it was the love of God who drew me back. That's why it was so important that Jesus said to love one another. See, there was a time many years ago when a small group of Jesus followers decided to empowered by the Holy Spirit, decided to uh, live their lives according to Jesus' way. And that was to love people until they asked why, to love people, to draw them in so that they could reach them for Jesus Christ. And that small group of people changed the world. They were not coerced, they were not um, begged, but they were drawn to the edge to come and see and see what this love looks like. And it transformed the world. See, how the love, see how they love one another. When you see that, it's absolutely irresistible. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this irresistible love that you have told us about in your word is um, something we can't hardly fathom. But Father, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we're going to continue to say yes even when we don't understand it, even when we don't get it, even when we don't agree with it. Because we're simply disciples of Jesus Christ. And the greatest thing that you told us as disciples is to love you with our whole heart. And to love others, Father. Not only those here in the church, but those outside the church. To love them in such a way that they are drawn into you and experience that love and redemption from Jesus Christ. Father, that is what you have called us to be. And we want to be that, Lord. I believe this congregation with all my heart wants to be that kind of a church. And so that's my blessing on them right now, that they would be followers of Jesus in such a way that Oro Valley and all the ministries that they do would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that is my prayer for this church. And now, Lord, as we uh, go into communion, I pray that this great sacrifice that you made on our behalf, this great love that you showed us through your son, Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins, that we would reenact that, that we would experience that anew, and that as Christ followers, we would once again say, yes, whatever you say, the answer is yes. 
So bless us now to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.